Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Hey everyone, it's me, James, from up here in the frozen north. Season 8 of Dakota Spotlight, titled Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveling, will start on March 1st, 2023. In fact, here's a short sneak peek for you just for being here. But don't go away. I've got something special for you afterwards. At the early morning hour of 1 a.m. on Sunday, October 28, 2007, at the northern end of the university town of Grand Forks, North Dakota, a taxi cab operated by the red, white, and blue taxi service purred slowly along Washington Street in search of its next fare. Outdoors, it was cold, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 5 Celsius, and although it was technically early Sunday morning, for many of the city's partying and pub-crawling patrons, this moment in time belonged to the tail end of a cheap Saturday night, a night spent out on the town. Most of these late-night partiers would soon return home where they would free-fall into their beds. But first, they had to get home. Uh, I'm up here on 36 now, about to go under the ordinance bridge. Behind the wheel of that taxi cab sat 40-year-old Paul Ballstead. Ballstead cruised northwest on Washington, scanning the street for any frozen late-nighters in need of a lift. On his left, the El Rocco bar popped up, but not much was sizzling there. Nobody hailing for his cab. 43, you're going to the smoke shack. Again, Season 8, Unresolved, the murder of Joel Loveline will begin on March 1st. But there's something else I want to share with you right now, and I'll start by asking you some questions. Do you like being wrongfully accused? Of course you don't. Do you value your own right to privacy? I bet you do. How would you feel then if law enforcement came to your door with a search warrant and searched your home for something you had absolutely nothing to do with? I bet you'd be shocked, and so would your children, and so would your neighbors. Can't you just see your neighbor watching from the window as police raid your home? And don't worry, it gets worse. Your whole community is about to hear about it. How would you feel if the local police department then posted your name on Facebook and shared with the whole community that your home had been searched? I'm guessing you would be enraged. But hang on, again, it gets worse. How would you feel if a judge later determined that the law enforcement officer had negligently falsified the search warrant in the first place? Well, I guess a part of you would be relieved that the nightmare was over. A judge has just ruled against the law enforcement officer, thereby voiding the whole search, regardless of what the cops did or did not find. Sure, a part of you might feel relieved, but how are you going to rebuild your reputation in your community? How would you feel if that same police department, after a judge had ruled that the warrant was falsified, how would you feel that they never took down or deleted that Facebook post in your community? How would you feel if that post was still there to this day? 
Well, that's what the police department in Montevideo, Minnesota has done, and my colleague, Trissa Turinskas, can tell you all about it in the following podcast episode. It is part two of her investigation into a suspicious death in that town, Montevideo, Minnesota. And by the way, this is why local journalism is needed. If it wasn't for Trisha, nobody would be hearing about any of this. I'll see you March 1st with episode 1 of Unresolved, the Murder of Joel Loveling. But for now, here is Trisha Terenskus and part 2 of her investigation. This is part 2 in an ongoing series on the death of Refugio Rodriguez. If you haven't listened to the first part, I would suggest you go ahead and do that now. It covers a lot of key details necessary in this complex case. Stick around for the end of this episode when I discuss what happened after the print version of this story went live on forum communication sites. My inbox in the days after it was published tells another story, a story behind the story. In late August of 2020, less than one month before Montevideo, Minnesota police investigator Carmen Beninga was assigned to investigate the death of 36-year-old Refugio Rodriguez, she made her way to the witness stand in the Chippewa County Courthouse to defend her actions in another criminal investigation. She was under fire for what has now been deemed a flawed investigation. A judge determined she had deliberately or recklessly misrepresented the facts in a 2019 search warrant application that resulted in the raid of a Montevideo home. Charges related to the raid were dropped. In court, the judge referred to her search warrant application as negligently falsified. The judge made that determination just six days before Carmen Beninga logged her last entry in the police report related to Refugio's death. Nearly the entirety of the investigation into his death took place while Carmen Beninga's investigation skills were in question, in court. Despite it all, she was handed the investigation into Refugio's death. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. It's been difficult to determine the oversight Carmen Benninga has as the department's sole investigator. Since the first podcast in the series aired, Police Chief Ken Shuley hasn't returned my phone calls and emails related to the department's oversight policies. Was someone checking Carmen Benninga's work, especially after a judge determined she negligently falsified a search warrant? Right now, we don't know. In order to fully understand this story, it's important that we look into the specifics of the 2019 search warrant. At the heart of this story are the victims of the raid, 
Carrie Shelstead, and Warren Adams, longtime Montevideo residents. Carrie Shelstead was at work when she got the phone call. Her Montevideo home was being raided by police officers. Her children were on their way home from school, and she immediately got in her car and raced home. She wanted to spare her children from whatever was happening. I guess that's just the the part that will, I guess, haunt me forever. You know, they could have came at 8 in the morning when the kids were at school or... You know, like I said, just knocked on the door, asked to talk to Warren, or came up to the hospital and asked to talk to me. I mean, it's not like they, Mm -hmm. like we had these criminal records and we were these dangerous people that were roaming the streets. You know, they clearly, I guess in my mind, could have handled it differently. When she arrived at her house that day, on November 18th, 2019, Carrie Shelstead was confronted by police officers. They showed her the search warrant and told her Warren Adams, her partner, had sold a stolen firearm. They said the gun was stolen from a home in North Carolina, along with a lot of other valuable stolen belongings, including some expensive jewelry and even more firearms. The cops told Carrie Shelstead there was probable cause to believe Warren Adams was involved. Except... Warren Adams didn't sell a stolen firearm, and he wasn't involved. He had no connection to North Carolina. He'd never even been there. At the heart of all this was a shotgun that Warren Adams sold to an online auction service. Now, it's fairly routine for those in the online auction gun trade to make sure the weapons they're purchasing aren't stolen. So the purchaser, the one who bought the gun, took that gun to the Benson Police Department which is a smaller town bordering Montevideo. It was checked through the National Crime Information Center database, along with the other firearms he purchased from Warren. One gun he bought from Warren Adams was flagged as stolen. The problem, though, was that the wrong serial number was entered into the database. This is where the story starts to go off the rails. Benson police officer Michael Nadeau testified in court that he entered the model number as the serial number into the database. It was an accident. He unintentionally omitted the decimal point as well, and that is why the gun was flagged as stolen. It matched the serial number of a gun reported stolen from North Carolina. He turned the case over to the Montevideo Police Department, because technically that's where Warren Adams lived, and therefore where the crime was potentially committed. The case was sent to Carmen Beninga's desk. When investigating the case, Carmen Beninga didn't catch the missing decimal point. She moved forward with the investigation, obtaining photos of the allegedly stolen gun. And here's the thing. They looked different. The stolen weapon had a blonde custom finish with burn marks from a torch. That differed from the physical description of the shotgun Warren Adams sold. His firearm had a dark wooden finish with no burn marks. Carmen Beninga did not include those discrepancies in the search warrant application. She also learned in the investigation that the owner of the gun, the original owner, basically believed a family member had taken the weapon. 
In her investigation, Carmen Benega did not seek out information related to any potential connections Warren Adams might have had to North Carolina. She did not investigate whether Warren Adams had recently been to North Carolina. And as I mentioned before, he's never traveled there. You know, I guess the part that I, well, the whole thing, but the part that just showed such incompetence and I guess lack of training and education was this supposed gun stealing took place way out in North Carolina. Um, Mm -hmm. They had no evidence that Warren had ever been there, which he's never been there. That information was also omitted from the search warrant application. Instead, Carmen Benninga confidently handed over a search warrant application to a judge. She claimed she had confirmed that Warren Adams sold a stolen firearm from a pretty big theft out of North Carolina, and there was probable cause to believe he was the thief, or at least involved. But as she said in court, she knew the gun in question didn't match the description of the stolen firearm. In her testimony, she said she did not include the physical description discrepancies in the search warrant application because she assumed the owner of the gun, and this is a quote, made a mistake and most likely just mixed it up with one of the other guns. That assumption did not sit well with the judge. Here's what the judge wrote in his conclusion. The court does not find that Benninga acted intentionally to deceive the court. However, omissions and misstatements amounted to more than mere negligence, because Benninga had obvious reasons to doubt the accuracy of the information she reported. We know now that, less than one week later, Carmen Benninga filed her last entry in the case pertaining to Refugio's death. It was ruled a suicide. Case closed. I should note here that days after the raid, the Montevideo Police Department created a post on their Facebook page. It stated that Carrie and Warren were charged with crimes unrelated to any theft out of North Carolina. That post was never deleted or corrected. The search warrant at the heart of the second story matters because... Even in the midst of a case in which a judge highlighted Carmen Benninga's bad police work, she was handed another case, the case involving the death of Refugio, a possible homicide. That alone warrants a critical look at Refugio's investigation. Yet, as we covered in the first story of this series, the police report we obtained showed that Carmen Benninga did not follow up on credible leads indicating someone was out to kill Refugio for his alleged work as a confidential informant. At least four individuals told Carmen Benninga that Refugio believed someone was out to kill him. He believed it when he was in prison. He believed it when he left prison. And he expressed it to multiple people in the week before he was killed. The police report shows that multiple people provided the same name of the individual Refugio believed was out to get him. Possible accomplices were also named. There were also discrepancies in the police report and the autopsy report related to the manner in which Refugio's body was found 
We went over that in the first episode. The medical examiner was not present at the crime scene, which means the documentation and reliability of the Montevideo Police Department was incredibly important. Those are the facts of the story. Yet, there's more to all of this. The story behind the story. The story of what happened in Montevideo, Minnesota, when the online and print version of this story went live. I would describe Montevideo as a news desert. That's essentially an area where watchdog journalism within a community no longer exists, if it ever did. There is a local weekly paper in Montevideo, but like many small towns, it exists to inform the public about local events, community wins, donations made. It's run by an incredibly small staff. They simply don't have the capability to carry out reporting that holds local bodies of power, like the police department, accountable. And it shows. I live in Montevideo. Like many of us in this post-pandemic world, I work from home. From my basement office, actually. I cover stories in North Dakota, South Dakota, and throughout Minnesota. It just so happens that this story, Refugio's story, was playing out in my backyard. And so, like a local reporter would, I had the benefit of being immersed in the story and in close proximity to the institutions and individuals at the heart of the story. I wouldn't have been able to cover it in this way otherwise. And that's why, when residents of Montevideo who were connected to or felt proud of local law enforcement read my stories, they were faced with a scenario they've never really been in before. A scenario in which journalism was highlighting, in plain sight, law enforcement being held accountable. And some were angry. Some were confused as to why the story existed at all. My motives were questioned through emails and Facebook Messenger messages. I got the sense that one segment of the community was yelling in unison, How could you? I wonder if those who are angry tend to be those who have benefited from the institutions of local law enforcement. Maybe it's worked for them. And they haven't been on the end of police misconduct or unlawful search warrants. Maybe they see themselves as the, quote, good guys. If a cop messes up and violates the right of a, quote, bad guy, what's the big deal? Good is good and bad is bad. But that's why we have laws. Rights. The Constitution. Determining how one should be treated based on one individual's morality meter doesn't fit within the American legal system. Not all of the feedback has been negative, though. In fact, a lot of the feedback came from a place of gratefulness. I've been thanked for doing basic journalistic work through both whispers and loud voices. Those who were grateful felt they were finally seeing local law enforcement being held accountable. And they were relieved. They are the ones who have been labeled as 
the bad guys and have been at the receiving end of law enforcement misconduct. The institution, for them, does not work. And then there's another segment of the population. Those who themselves haven't been victimized, but simply have compassion for those who have. I recently had a conversation with Eloise, Refugio's mother, around her kitchen table. And she said something to me that stuck. She's a kind, loving woman. It's hard not to like her. She told me quite confidently that if the critics and law enforcement officers were able to put themselves in her shoes, if it were their son, they'd think differently. They'd know how she feels. They don't care because it's not, it's not their kids. They're not related. You know, it's just like other people, you know. Because I know deep in my heart that if it would have been related to them or their kids or whatever, they would have done whatever they could to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. I know that deep in my heart. But since it it's doesn't have nothing to do with them, I mean, you know, family or anything like that, they don't care. As long as they get rid of people that are on drugs or whatever, you know, it's that's all they care. You know, they don't care what other people feel, you know, because they don't feel it. Look for part three of this series coming soon. To read the print version of the story, head to inforum.com. Just look for the vault section. You've been listening to The Vault, a forum communications podcast covering true crime and general intrigue in the upper Midwest. I'm your host, Trisha Terenskis. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.